Chris, thanks for making the trip out here, man. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having us. How do you like Heber City, Utah? Oh, man, Utah is amazing. If I had to move, this would be on the top of the list. It's beautiful. The yeah. people are amazing, too. If you win the lottery, you could absolutely live here, right? <laughs> it's so expensive here. I just It wasn't like that. I, I feel bad because we talk about it and we're like, this is like heaven. You could raise a family. I got goats in the backyard in a neighborhood, kind of. And it's just it's they're surrounded by mountains, but it's not that attainable because it's so damn expensive, man. I love that it's five minutes and you're out in the mountains. I know. And five minutes in any direction, you're in a different mountain. That's what's crazy about it. Like people don't realize like the access to I mean, I can I can get on a motorcycle, hit this trailhead ten minutes behind the house and be lost for weeks. Like never come back. Um Chris Stroop of Stroop Knives. Um I wanted to bring this up to you guys uh as far as content's concerned because we talk about uh, knives in context of survival, EDC, but also the veteran experience. There's a lot of veterans coming out and doing uh, knives. Grizzly Forge for Black Rifle Coffee. Um, one of my favorite knives companies uh, is Josh Smith, who's not a veteran, but supports for veteran advocacy and nonprofits. Um, but I'm a big knife guy when it comes to like, you can't, you can't be into survival without having a damn knife. Um, so I wanted to have you on to talk about your experience because you're just, I mean, when did you get out of the military? Two years ago. So 2020. That's yeah. That's not, that's like, you're like an infant in transitioning. A hundred percent. Yeah. How, let's talk about your military experience. Like, um, how was your overall military experience looking back on it? I joined as a communications specialist at 25 uniform and I had a blast. So I started out in the regular army, 25th ID in Hawaii, went to Iraq for a year, almost as soon as I got to Hawaii. And I wasn't a challenge. It was boring to me. So I tried out for 160th SOAR and I spent four years there working with the best helicopter pilots and all kinds of different, everybody that there is. It was a lot of fun. And then I wanted the next thing. So I tried out for a special missions unit and then spent four years there, but got hurt along the way a few times. But I had a blast. I loved everything I did. There's so many great people. And I think a lot of the skills that I learned in the military transferred to starting a business. Yeah, you're, you're right on on that. I, I, I think a lot of people don't understand, like, outside the discipline, all the value systems that you learn, the process, how you plan, like, just the understanding of kind of like how to set an objective and then execute an objective is pretty stellar. And a lot of guys waste that talent. Um, how's your experience at 160th? I, I, I'm a big fan of 160th, man. I love those dudes. I loved it. It was a lot of fun. You just, as a combo guy, I would go before the helicopters got there and set up all the base comms and all that and coordinate with all the units. So I got to kind of be on my own and make everything happen. So again, the creative problem solving and setting goals and reaching them on your own with nobody really pushing you. How, how'd you wind up getting hurt? Did you, is it like, what was it in your body that was it a specific injury or how did that happen? I don't know if it was a specific injury. I have a hole in the cartilage of my right knee. They said it would have been from a giant fall that would have been memorable, but I mean, there's so many of those. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Jumping it's probably out of airplanes. Just and the, the mid, I mean, just the abuse, right? Yeah. 
So it started with that, but we got it rehabbed enough to deploy a couple more times. And because I kept going, I tore the meniscus in my left knee to the point where there was no fixing it. So it was just kind of cumulative of messing up body parts. I think it started with that knee though. And then it caused the hips and the back and the shoulder and all the problems came from that. And, and you said you didn't medically retire, right? You didn't, you didn't wind up medically retiring, but you had a med out like a med. Was it a med board? Is that how it works? It was a, it was a med board. Um, I got a really high rating from the VA, but the army screwed me over. Mm. They gave me 20% huh. for my shoulder. I got out for my knees because I couldn't run a ruck anymore. So they gave you a med board for your knees. Yep. And said, hey, you just can't, we can't re-up you because your knees. And then they give you 20% for your shoulder. That sounds exactly right. That's, <laughs> that's, that's exactly right. That's like, that's like going to Chick-fil-A and getting a taco. Like, it's just like, that's how the system is, man. It's like, I don't understand that system. So when you go to VA, um, and I hope some <laughs> veteran advocacy groups are listening to this or somebody who understands the system besides the the comments that you're going to hear in the comments below where people are like screw the va um so you you get med boarded and then you have to go through a a veteran affairs process right how that work how did you get to a point where they're like yeah your shoulders are bad and not your knees well because of where i worked i kind of got to dictate the process and how things went they worked with me a lot and i had the same pa for years mm -hmm. so he kind of helped me decide that it was time to get out so i think my transition was a little bit different but getting onboarded with the va after service was um, i have my first appointment in december if that tells you anything and i've been out for two years so your first appointment is like in a month or like by this podcast it's like this december yep correct uh i made it back in march so when I first got out, they decided I was still active duty for months, six months, a year. I don't know. So nobody could give me VA. And then they put me as retired. So then I couldn't, when I tried to apply for a VA, they were like, no, you're eligible for TRICARE. I'm like, what do you mean? I don't think I am. <laughs> <laughs> you should have just went with it. I'm like, yeah, give me, let, well, let's do this. I did it first. And they made me pay a bunch of money to get onboarded with them. And it was this whole thing. And then... Because they were adamant that I was eligible for TRICARE. <laughs> really? Yeah. But then it, I had to dig into it more. And then I made this appointment probably back in February or March for my December appointment with the VA. Yeah. Why didn't, why didn't they medically retire you? Like, actually, why didn't they give you a retirement and just say, hey, here's, here's your retirement pay. And then that would qualify you, I think, for 100% service connection, total and permanent because it's a permanent disability, I assume. Yeah, I'm 100% permanent in total. I don't know what they did. I did it during COVID also, and that caused a whole bunch of delays and dramas, trying to get a hold of people. And Yeah. So you don't get, you don't collect retirement? No. That's, that's not right. But again, we're talking about the Army and the Veteran Affairs process. But I did go to the emergency room a couple weeks ago for the flu for the very first time. And it was a great experience. The PA was super friendly. I was probably there for 40 minutes total. This is the VA at the VA clinic? or Yeah, uh, the main VA in Fayetteville. I so, if you were, so what, they wanted to give you 20% as a rating? Through the Army, but the VA gave me 100. Oh. So I get paid from the VA for yeah. my disability rating, but the Army, because it was only for my shoulder, whatever reason, yeah, that kind of screwed me out of a lot of the benefits. Yeah. No, no medical, like no TRICARE, 
and then no retirement, but you got you're squared away with total and permanent with through the veteran affairs system. Yeah. Okay. That's a little bit better, but again, not not what it should be. I mean, you should be collecting a retirement check plus veteran affairs check because the reason you have bad knees is because of the army. Yeah. Yeah, and bad everything else. Yeah, that's crazy, man. <laughs> it's crazy. So, if you had to like sum up uh, the transition, although you are still transitioning, how has it been for you? Do you do you miss the guys? Do you miss the military, or are you just like I'm done? I'm over it. Oh, I loved what I did. I loved all the guys. I loved the mission. I would have stayed in if I could. So it's definitely hard, especially seeing your buddies go to war and you're at home. Like, man, I hope they make it home safe. What are they doing? Wish I could have been there to help, you know? Yeah. But at the end of the day, it was good for my family because I was gone so much while I was in. It's really nice having four kids and being able to be home yeah. pretty consistently with them. And you got them. young kids too, I assume? Seven, eight, ten, and almost 12. Okay. Yeah, those kids need you at home, man. Yeah. I have a – having kids post-military experience, I have a newfound respect for guys who served and had to leave their babies behind. I mean, I remember being on deployments downrange, and guys would be like getting spun up if they were able to fly back to see their kids born, and then their kids were born before they could fly back, and then just like, well, I'll just stay then. And I'm just like, man, like missing all of that time through all of the GWAT, and just I couldn't do it. I was in Iraq when my first son was born. We were out in a, on a mission in our strikers, and they tapped me on the shoulder and were like, hey, man, the talk just called and said your baby was born. I'm like, man, it is Christmas Day. We're an hour into like a 15-hour day. Like, and they were asking me why I wasn't excited. I'm like, what you, I can't call home. I can't do anything. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> what do you want me to do here? <laughs> like, yeah. I got a mission to accomplish to, to survive. Yeah, it's, that's a huge sacrifice that guys make, it, uh, especially with kids. But I'm glad. So having a good family structure with the wife and the kids, a good family unit, I assume that helps a lot. Uh, I have no? a new wife. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's a good thing. A wife, period, is a good thing. So you went? Did you get? Did you separate and go through a, a situation uh, post military, and then now you're starting over, or is it? Uh, it was all at once. It was the med board and getting divorced at oh. the same time within like a two week period. Yeah, that could so be tough. It was really tough. The whole life just changed all at once mm -hmm. went from having a stable life with kids and a wife to living on a friend's couch yeah I've and had, getting yeah. out of the army yeah that's that's tough how'd you get through that situation um well it sucked for a while it was really tough trying to figure it all out but meeting my wife happenstance i was not interested in talking to anybody at the time <laughs> we just happened to meet her and she's been just a huge help through all of this help manage everything we yeah. have full custody of all the kids now too which is amazing oh that's awesome so i went from living on the couch barely being able to see my kids and two years later we have full custody and a pretty thriving business wow that's amazing man so but, i imagine the new wife is uh an anchor point behind that success oh 100 percent. yeah it, it sometimes it takes that man it takes a strong person to come into our lives and kind of unscrew us if that's the best way to put it um yeah. do you still think about the guys do you do you 
are you still kind of hung up on the fact that you're not in or are you creating separations and like moving forward? I think what's really helped me move forward is hiring veterans because mm. we can still have that sort of team room dynamic while we make knives together. <laughs> so it's that helped a lot. And we donate to a lot of veteran nonprofits and I have friends that are getting out and starting businesses. So I spend a lot of time helping them. Mm. So I think all of those things helps out. What, what do you think? Uh, th that's interesting because in how I started my company, Phil Kraut Survival, it was the same kind of it wasn't a desire to make people better prepared. It wasn't a desire to like give back. The desire was to build kind of the feeling that I had when I was in the military. And then by benefit of that and feeling normal again and the fruits of the labor coming to fruition, I was able to help other people and then selflessly getting back to like a value system that I was familiar with. Like when you're in the military, you're not doing it for a paycheck. You're doing it because you're willing to sacrifice for your friends, for your for your family, for the country, whatever your your virtue is. But has that given you the same feeling that you had in the military that makes it a little bit easier? Yeah, I think so. Um, so rewind a little before we started the knife company full time. I got into real estate. Mm, interesting. Um, I learned I'm really good at selling houses. Mm -hmm. I sold a lot of houses and I was the team leader of the real estate team within like the first four months of being a licensed real estate agent. Yeah. Um, but it was terrible. It ate my soul. Did it? <laughs> oh man. What you're, was bad about it? You're constantly on your phone. You're yeah. constantly writing contracts and showing houses and you don't, you don't belong to yourself anymore at that point. Yeah. A lot of admin. A lot of admin, a lot of just dealing with everybody's problems everything is in real estate's an emergency right they get the home inspection report and they're like ah the house is falling apart and like it was built in 1970 calm down we're okay yeah it was just too much but we used that money to be able to use that for our savings account while we built the knife company because mm. we didn't start paying ourselves till recently we don't pay ourselves much just enough to live yeah that way we can grow the company what was the what was the idea for you to start your own business outside of the knife and and your passion, obviously, for knife making. What was the idea that you were like, I need to step away from real estate. I need to start a business or something for myself. Yeah, it's a lot of the kids. Because mm. when I was in real estate, it was always work. So mm. now making knives, nobody tells me when I have to make knives. Mm -hmm. We travel sometimes, but I get to pick when and where mm. and for how long. So we try and time it when we don't have our kids. Mm. So yeah. just the shop is on our property. So I can walk out, I can put the kids on the school bus and then walk to the knife shop and make knives all day. And then I'm home when they get off the school bus. Coolest thing in the world. That's so interesting, man. That dynamic of like trying to, when you're an entrepreneur, you create this independence, a self-licking ice cream cone is the objective. But being able to be closely anchored to family is the number one incentive. It's the number one incentive for me. I... I I don't like to be away from my kids and I only have 50% custody. So when my kids are with me, if I have work, I want it intertwined, which is why, I mean, you're in my basement right now. <laughs> my kids are upstairs. These kids were down here this morning when I showed yeah. up hanging yeah. out. I love it, man. I love my son coming around here, poking around the cowboy guns, touching stuff and looking at the coins and that, that feeling of, um, like you said, being able to have your own independence versus working for somebody. It's pretty huge, right? And we're teaching them all along the way because they're seeing how we're building this company. 
Mm. So we try and include them and walk them through our decisions. Mm. Why did we do this? Why don't we pay ourselves more? Mm -hmm. Why are we building a second building? All of these things, we try and how to hire employees, how to deal with employees, Mm. money, all the everything we can to teach these kids. So if they want to take over the knife business, they can. But if they don't, they can either help somebody else grow their business. They can start their own. They got all the options. I like that idea of raising entrepreneurs, man. I, I people are like, oh, is your is your kids into space? And what do you think they're going to be into? Are they going to be a doctor or a nurse? I'm like, no, they're going to be entrepreneurs. My kids going to be coding at five. I want them to have all the tools of entrepreneurship because I want them to be able to go. Hey, I could step into a business or I can create a business, and I think it's like I, I don't. It's the most satisfying but also the most painful thing on the planet Earth, right? I mean, capitalism is great. Freedom is great. Having the opportunity to start a business is great. But I assume you've had lots of challenges along the way. Like, has it been easy or or has been starting and managing a business been difficult? <laughs> My wife's right <laughs> off camera. Uh, it's definitely been a challenge, a lot of challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, and then every time you think it's easy, there's a new challenge. But the creative problem solving, everything is just a problem. Mm-hmm. So what I've distilled everything down to for business is be a good human. Yeah. <laughs> so if you take it from that approach, be a good human and do the work mm. and it's, then and make a good product. If you just kind of follow those guidelines, it works out. Yeah, I like that, man. I it, It's tough. You know, even when somebody the other day was like, uh, somebody called you a sellout because they said, you uh you do everything for money and and then you sold your values and i was like well what if you could do both like what if you could have good values and make money like making money is part of keeping a business alive and and people think with businesses that the objective is to be like uber rich and then you have a Ferrari and you have a mansion on top of a mountain and then you're done. It's like, holy crap. If I wanted to be wealthy, I sure as hell wouldn't be running a business because there's a lot of other things I could do to be independently wealthy. And it, it's, I don't, I don't think people understand kind of how it works. Um, are some of the challenges related to, uh, I assume, like, I mean, like, what are your challenges? If you had to name a few challenges, what have they been? I think the overall thing is just learning mm-hmm. from military. You don't learn how to run a business, right? You learn how to solve problems and deal with people and all those things. But you don't learn about uh, sales and use tax and keeping your books up to date and dealing with employees and all of dealing with employees. That's probably the hardest, the most drama filled. Yeah. Especially hiring veterans. <laughs> it's tough. Yeah, I've I've gone through my share of hiring veterans, which I love to do, but veterans could be pain in the asses. They show up with a lot of their own problems, and some of them won't deal with them, so they manifest at work, and mm. sometimes really not work related, not work appropriate manners. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, I have so many stories with that. Uh, I mean, from guys smoking weed mm. on the job to just crazy stuff, where I'm just like, oh. And if it was in the military, I'd be like, yeah, man, whatever, man. Just just straighten your shit up. But when you're running a business, that potentially is the legacy of your family. It's like you got to take that serious and you got to make moves. Um, so I assume in the structure of your business, 
um, growth and expansion and hiring veterans and doing all these good things is part of the the protocol. Um, let's talk about your business. What what is your business? And then um, tell me a little bit about it. All right. So we're Stroop Knives. We're veteran owned and family operated, located in Hope Mills, North Carolina. We get our knives water jet cut by a company in New Jersey, and we do everything else in our shop. Mm. So. We use a CNC machine to shape the handles. That way they're always the same. Mm. And I learned how to use a CNC machine at night after the kids went to bed for months and months. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what we do. We do everything else by hand. That's interesting because a lot of guys uh, who own knife companies would be like, why aren't you forging them uh, versus finishing them? And I've I, I, I have limited experience with knives and I don't even know if those terms are right. I just made that shit up. But when it comes to when it comes to knives and CNC, walk us through the process of kind of how that works. Why why would you CNC a knife versus forging a knife? How does that work? Because I want to make the same knife every time for you guys. So if you buy a Bravo 5, it's going to be a Bravo 5. If I had to forge them or cut them out by hand, it's always going to be a little bit different. Mm. And this way I know the steel is reliable. We know exactly how to work with it. We know what it's going to do. So there's 75 steps that we go through. So a lot of times we'll get, oh, you just buy a blank and sharpen it. Mm. Well, yeah, we buy a rusty piece of steel with my CAD file that I made and go through 75 processes Mm. that are all meticulously created by us. And then you have a finished knife. Yeah. Yeah. 75 steps, huh? Yeah. We counted them. Yeah. So I imagine um, it's also about scale. You can't scale like I love like Grizzly Forge. Like Lucas is one of the best forgers of knives in the country. Josh Smith is one of the foremost experts on knives. Period. Kevin Estella, knife expert. But there is a limitation, obviously, in forging knives versus manufacturing knives. Uh, I just spent some time at Benchmade at the factory talking to their their team, and super impressed by their ability to like from the ground up design in-house manufacture, does, uh, shape, f- you know, do all the processes, like you said, the 75 processes in-house, and then and then they own it. You know what I mean? Like, and, and I want that reliable knife. There's a time and place for a forged knife that's beautiful, and like I could stare at it, but I want a utility knife. What's the specialty of your knives? Like, what is the, is, is the staple specialty of your knife? Utility, bushcraft, like what is it? Yeah, utilities. So we design our knives either for the tactical community, cops, law enforcement, things like that, or for the outdoors community. Mm. So all of our knives are built on purpose. Everything is designed for a reason. Mm. From the way we shape our grips to the steel we use, the finish we put on them, the way the sheath is designed. So yeah, to the scale issue, you can either make 30 knives and charge more as you scale. Because when you're forging knives, you can't make a lot of them. Mm -hmm. Or you figure out our thing is we figure out how to make a better knife faster. So it's got to be better first, and then we figure out how to do it faster. Mm, I love that. I love that. Um, why knives? Where did the knife concept come? I mean, you could have started any business. Like, you could have had a family ice cream company, which is fat. I want to do that one day because I like <laughs> ice cream. Um, but why knives? Why did you choose knives? Since I was a kid, I've always been fascinated with knives. Mm. Uh, my childhood growing up, my mom was very scared of everything so i wasn't allowed to have knives or even toy guns Mm. so as soon as i turned 18 i started buying knives and collecting them because i thought they were neat Mm. and then i needed a hobby to do while i was still in the army and we just 
my oldest son and I started making knives together, bringing them into the team room, and they sold like crazy. Really? Yeah. So you started hustling knives in the team room? Not on purpose. Yeah, People but I mean, just wanted to that's see what so we were awesome. making. Yeah, we just sold as fast as we can make them. Yeah. Because did, did you bring any of your knives here? Yeah. Let me let me get this. I'm gonna pull this. So this is a uh, TU2FDE. That's the nomenclature, I assume. Yep, that's the model and then the handle color. Oh, nice. Okay. And so, what's the what's the specifics on this particular knife? All of our steel is 1095 high carbon steel, and uh, most of our handles are G10. What's that's, that mean? What's for the for the layman? What is what is the even the nomenclature for the steel mean? What does that mean? So 1095 is going to hold a really good edge, and it's going to take a beating. It's kind of the old trusty, the reliable knife steels come and go. It seems like there's always a new flavor that's in at this time. Mm -hmm. So we went with something we know is reliable. It's been used for years and years and years. And then G10 is that handle material, and it's abrasive resistant, so you can beat the crap out of it, and it's going to hold up. Dude, this knife looks forged. This is CNC'd and then finished. Just the shape is CNC'd. Yeah, just shape, and then you have to finish it. So it's like yep. that's where the art comes in. We grind the bevels, the texture on the flats. We do that by hand. We have a kid that's got Asperger's, mm -hmm. and that's his job. He just sits there in his happy little world and just smashes the knives all day long, happy as could be. That's awesome, man. Well, what's what's crazy is like it's it is forged. I mean, right? This is like, I mean, I, I assume uh, part of the forging process is shaping and finish or shaping and, and beating the steel to, to finished. Um, but this is actually custom forged, right? It's not forged. The only yeah. thing we do with heat is the heat treat process. Oh, forging means heat. Forging is when you heat it up and do things to it, basically. Okay. We use grinders for, like that texturing is done with a little grinder. But it's it. every one of those little texture lines is done by hand so every knife is going to be a little bit different mm -hmm. and th but they're all going to feel the same and be the same shape because of the cnc and the water jet i like the depth of where your hand goes here because i'm always scared working with knives of my hand slipping up through the knife and i like the, the ability for the hand to sink down into it like this but also push your thumb so you can counter counterbalance it it actually is like a a, a cool position for the hand to be in because knives scare the crap out of me like everybody's like why don't you guys do knife fighting courses and i'm like we'll never do that because it just scares the hell out of me if a guy pulls a knife on him i'm shooting him with a machine gun because that like i'm not going to get stabbed by a dude with a knife that is like scary i mean uh knives are so deadly um i, I think they're actually more deadly than guns because when you when you have a person who knows what the hell they're doing or radically doesn't know what the hell they're doing with a knife, you you often think and underestimate their capability with the knife. You're like, oh, this dude's got a knife. Like, haha, until he sticks you and then punctures your chest cavity. And you're like, everything's cool until it's not. And knives scare the hell out of me. Scary stuff. I've seen a lot of videos recently of people getting attacked by knives. Dude. It's scary. Did you see that one where the dude got, like, he's talking crap on the sidewalk and the dude just steps in, takes one slice at his neck, punctures his jugular, and the dude bleeds out in like 10 seconds, he's dead. That was one of the ones I was thinking about. It's oh, scary. Dude, that's scary, man. What's the utility? 
We're, we're really selling knives right now. <laughs> um, uh, what's the utility for something like this? Like, what is this made for? So a lot of military guys use that one. They mm. put it on their kit or on their belt. But a lot of people every day carry that knife also because mm -hmm. it's thin enough in its profile that you can slide it in a pocket or in your waistband or you can hook it on your belt. Do you guys make the Kydex and stuff in-house? We do everything but the water jet in-house. Wow. Using American-made supplies. What do you mean? The, the What's the water jet do? It just cuts out the shape of the knife. Okay. And that's done in Jersey? Yep. Okay. So they just send me a box of basically rusty steel in the shape of a knife. That's, I assume that's pretty expensive to do. That that part of it, like in bulk, why don't you do that in house? Because a water jet machine is $100,000 and requires a specialist to run it. And everybody told me that that's the most drama filled piece of equipment you'll ever have. Yeah. Think of water and abrasive squirting through a machine. It's just wreck stuff. Yeah. And $100,000. And $100,000. Yeah. That as well. <laughs> and a three phase power and a giant space for it and a forklift. Yeah. It's just it's a pain. Goes on and on. What are some of the challenges about running a knife business? Because I, I look at a, I mean, I wish my company was a knife business because we could uberly focus on one thing. We got media training, which is services and products. Um, what's some of the challenges with trying to build and make and sell a knife? The biggest thing is just teaching people how to make a quality knife. Because when it was just me making it, I was in control of every little thing on the knife. So now trying to teach somebody how to do that and create the processes and the systems, it's hard to teach people how to... I still sharpen every knife now. So it's hard to teach somebody how to do these higher skilled tasks. Yeah, because they're more, they're more refined, more yep. technical. A knife isn't very big. There's only so many things to look at and feel. So you can't really make mistakes on a knife. You're going to see it right away. Yeah. So you're finishing these things to make sure they're perfect. Yeah. And we have a lot of quality control steps it goes through and we're getting tighter and tighter as we go also. Um, yeah. I talked to, I uh, had Matt Graham on the podcast. Who's an old CIA buddy of mine who make, Oh, Eris watches, big shout out to Eris watches. Um, but he makes the Eris watch and he's, he talked about the same thing where, you know, it's so hard to find people whose specialty is craftsmanship because I mean, sure you can get guys to like churn out the factory floor and spit out the thing, but actually caring about the meticulous aspects of something. I imagine the knife world, all that has to be trained like step-by-step. Step. Yeah. hundred percent. Nobody shows up knowing how to make knives. We don't normally take anybody that knows anything about knives because mm. we don't, Kind of like teaching somebody how to shoot. It's easier if you just start from scratch. Yeah. yeah. So it's we just look for people that have that eye for detail mm. and being trainable. Has it been difficult in Hope Mills to find um, good people to do knife work or just work, period? Not really. We're mm. tied in with a lot of the local nonprofits, and some of our employees are tied in with the VA. So a lot of times we just get calls for people looking for work. Oh really? Yeah. How, well, talk to me about that. What does that mean? Like, you have you have like a tie-in with nonprofits that have people who are like, I want to do some work with a veteran-owned company, and then that that's how it works. Yeah. So one of our recent employees, the VA, our friend has a friend that works at the VA, and he called and said, Hey, we have a veteran. He needs a purpose in life. Can you hire him? Hmm. Like, we'll we'll try. <laughs> Send him over. Let's talk to him. So we hired him the next day. 
So we try and be able to do things like that. Or the nonprofits, a lot of times they work helping out veterans. Mm. So we donate a lot of knives and sponsor events locally. Mm-hmm. And we donate knives all over the place, really. But a lot of times that puts us kind of at the front of their mind when they come up with people that need work. Mm. Mm. So sometimes it causes problems hiring those kind of people. Yeah. Because, you know, everybody's got their own dramas. But a lot of times we get really good people that way. Yeah, everybody's got their own incentive, right? Like, you can't, like, if you show up and you're pumped about making knives, maybe you're pumped about making money. Or maybe you're pumped about getting outside of your head. And that's a huge challenge, right? Because if they're if they're not bought into, like, hey, I'm pumped about making knives, it's like, how long does it last before they're, you know, expired or they check out, you know? Um, how big is the company now? We have eight employees right now. That's a lot. Plus my wife and I full-time and the yeah. kids every now and again. Yeah. So you guys are spitting out knives like crazy. We're getting there, yeah. We're getting better and better every day. So what's the goal with the knife company? What's I mean, what's the end state for you? Like, do you want to be like Benchmade? And like, what's the end objective for you? Yeah, we want to be a household name. A lot of that is just so we can hire more people, more veterans, continue to support our communities. And to me, it's fun. It's a challenge. Hmm. How big can we grow this? How many knives can we make that are better and better quality? Hmm. And then we give our kids something to strive for, you know? Like, look, our parents are trying their best to do the best they can. So that's what we should do. Yeah, I love that. Evan Hafer's original intent with going public had nothing to do about, I mean, going public, if you didn't realize it, is a big pain in the ace. Um, The objective was if we go public, then we could hire 10,000 veterans, which is the goal. And there's a crap ton of veterans that work for Black Rifle Coffee Company. Um, But it also, it could be a a challenge scaling anything. when you look at a knife business in the scale and getting it to where you want to be, um, how do you evolve knives? Because this is the EDC version of that. Do you have plans to do different variants, folders? I hear folders for knife companies is like, oh, God, it's a, just a different beast. We're going to run with the fixed blades for a while, focusing on kind of the outdoors and then the tactical community. I think in the next year or two, we'll start learning how to make folders. Mm-hmm. We might have a collaboration with another company in the works for a folder. We'll see if it shakes out. Jess, if you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So we have some big plans. Mm. We're just getting started. And we have new models that we're already working on. Just all kinds of things coming up. How many models do you have uh, total right now? 13. Holy crap. 13 SKUs of knives? That's awesome. It's about 82 SKUs with all the different colors. Wow. How many knives are you guys spitting out? I mean, what's the cycle? Is it per month or per day? What? We track them by month. Yeah. And it's a, a little over 400 right now. Wow, that's a lot. That's a lot for a small business. Doing a year knives. ago, we were in a two-car garage with one employee doing about 40 a month. Wow. And our knives have gotten better since then. So. Wow. Um, so I just wrapped up this book with Penguin Random called Prepared. It's preparing civilians, citizens for the worst-case scenario. And we have a, a chapter on EDC, and then a few paragraphs on knives. And I'm not the expert at knives. Uh, like, like I grew up with Benchmade butterfly knives, and I thought that was the shit. Um, but I'm not the expert at knives. Kevin Estella, who works for me, is the expert at knives. And he's also a foremost expert and instructor and trainer for everything bushcraft and survival. And I, I know uh, straight blade knives is like a must 
for bushcraft because of all the things that Kevin Estella would educate you on. What you know, all the thingy-majiggies you do on <laughs> sticks and wood and stuff. Um, but I know you're talking Kevin Estella, and we're we're potentially going to do a collaboration where I know Kevin Estella is doing a collaboration with you to design and come out with a bushcraft blade, and we're going to be hosting it on Philcraft Survival. Talk to me about that because I know doing a survival knife is very different than doing an EDC blade, right? Yeah, definitely. So we're designing a Puko style blade with Kevin. A what? It's a Puko. It's P U U K K O. Is that Filipino? No, it's not. Uh. It's like <laughs> Scandinavian, I believe. Oh, okay. Okay. It's a really simple to the point knife that's just meant for working. Mm. So it doesn't have any bells and whistles. It's got a pretty basic handle, pretty basic blade geometry is just meant for working it's meant to get out there and just do what you need it to do and keep going so it's made for all the survival stuff that you'd run into leverage wedging cutting does it is it serrated nope it's just a straight it's yeah. called a scandy grind so the one in your hand has its main bevel and then a sharpened edge the scandy grind is just a sharpened edge yeah it makes it more durable for doing bushcraft things uh, Josh Smith educated me on this and I, I had no idea until he did on the podcast uh, and he educated me on about geometry which I forgot already but it was about sharpening blades and how like I I don't think I've I don't think I've ever sharpened a blade and I've literally might have thrown away blades because they're like dull and I I didn't even know the biggest thing now being in hunting and and focusing on knives for specific parts of gutting and you know removing hide and all the intricacies of that um that a certain knife width is going to determine like that edge and so imagine on a bushcraft blade you need that thing to be thick but you need to be able to constantly sharpen that blade and refine it and I know Kevin Estella is somewhere right now. Kevin Estella is probably on the shitter sharpening a blade because he's addicted. Like he just, I just see him constantly <laughs> grinding blades. Is that part of the process for uh, a bushcraft blade? Oh yeah. Want? Everything has got its own geometry issues. Mm. Like we made a dagger. We kept it a little bit thicker because that's meant for penetrating, right? Not mm -hmm. really fine woodworking or anything. And mm. then kind of a more of an everyday carry knife. You need it to be able to open your packages and, do a million different tasks. You got to go with more of a medium mm. kind of angles, something that's going to be sharp and hold up well. Mm -hmm. Where the dagger, you need it to be sharp, but hold up really, really well. Because mm. if you're penetrating things, it's got to hold up. Mm. Or a bushcraft knife, it's got to be able to be abused and not chip. Did, what's the handle selection that you opted for that bushcraft blade with Kevin? Is it, I would imagine he's like 550 cord or something like that, but no. it's not. No, yep. definitely not. We're using G10, mm -hmm. so the same thing, the one that's in your hand. Yeah. And we're going to do black and OD green. I like, what is that? What is G10? Is it plastic or is it's it like a composite? It's a composite material. And one of our employees actually went to the factory where those are made to check it out for us. Mm -hmm. They use like 400 tons of pressure to cure it. And you got to try pretty hard to mess up those handles. Yeah, it's this one's pretty epic. Because it looks like a topographical, uh, <laughs> like it looks like a, a a terrain model of like the mountains, but it gives you all the grip without doing the stippling, right? It allows you to kind of hold on to it. Yep. So you're doing a G10 um, grip 
on a bushcraft blade. How big is the blade? It's about seven and a half inches overall, I believe. Don't quote me on this. Yeah. I just designed it maybe a week ago and the steel just showed up. So I'm about to really dive into figuring out all the details of it when we get home from this. Awesome, man. I'm actually looking forward to that collaboration. I, I don't have... I don't think I have any bushcraft blades. All my blades are like, like the one we did with Josh Smith was a hybrid between EDC, which had all the geometry of, of being able to puncture and all the stuff that Kevin dorked out about. Um, and it didn't last long, but it was a hybrid. And I can't keep that knife anywhere because everybody steals it from me. <laughs> um, but it's a great knife. But I am big. I mean, we do backcountry stuff, and I want a survival blade. And I told Kevin... And he, and he had uh, talked to you about it. And it's like, I, I have the perfect path for this. When's that blade come out? Sometime before Christmas. Mm. So very soon. Okay. I'm, I'm looking forward to that, man. Yeah, it's going to be fun. Um, so what is your favorite blades? Like, where did you grow up with knife-wise? And if outside of your own blades and your own company, what are some blades that stand out to you? When I was growing up, I had a zero tolerance. That was the first high-end pocket knife I bought the ZT right yep that was like back in the military days that yep. thick folder mm -hmm. that was the shit that's what I carried on in Iraq on my first rotation that's right the zero I <laughs> forgot who zero tolerance is the company yeah they're owned by Kershaw okay I've had those knives too those are my favorite knives I forgot all about those yeah they make good stuff oh wow what else what else you got uh my favorite knife companies now just because they're awesome people is Daniel Winkler He's been a big help. And then Mark and Curtis at Spartan Blades. They make really good pocket knives and fixed blades. That's right, man. I forget, We've done something with Spartan Blades before. Uh, Kevin Owens met them at an event, and they used to do they always donate to, like, they used to sock Sniper mm -hmm. Comp and the Green Beret Foundation. Um, Dan Winkler, huh? I, dude, I am missing a Dan Winkler knife that was off my kit. I still – people still knives for me all the time. But that wooden handled one, the the short one that like the seals use all the time, dude. I have no idea where the damn knife is. That's gonna bother <laughs> me. Um, what is your relationship with Winkler? Uh, so our honeymoon, we went up to where his shop is. That way, we can tour his shop and spend a day with him. <laughs> Dang! On so, your honeymoon? On our honeymoon, but it's in Epic. Boone, North Carolina, which is amazing. Yeah. So it was a good place for a honeymoon, but ulterior motive, you know? Yeah. So he helps us a lot. I can email him or call him with any kind of crazy questions we have. And then whenever we're at the shows together, we always end up hanging out. I, I ju it just occurred to me that I'm missing also a hatchet that Dan made for me. <laughs> Dude, I'm freaking out right now. So Dan Winkler, uh, Winkler hatchets, knives, and then um, he had a custom breaching hatchet that he made for a government organization I used to work for that we used for prying and wedging open vehicles to break in and out of vehicles. And uh, um, he's like one of the best knife makers in the world. How is he as a dude? Is he a pretty good dude? Oh, he's super friendly. Yeah. It's always helpful. The knife community is really cool because nobody sees each other as competition. Yeah. If you make a good knife, people are going to buy it. So we all try and help, you know, the rising tide raises all ships or whatever the saying is. Yeah. So everybody is super friendly in the knife community. What? That's weird. <laughs> friendly knife community? Um, that's awesome. I, Josh Smith says the same thing um, about, you know, Montana Knife Company, about how everybody kind of works, to, it collaborates together. And 
it, it, I wish the, the, the tactical or even the gun community was the same way because if you're a consumer of knives, you want like 20 of them because you want them for all different reasons. You collect them just like I have like probably 50 guns within five feet of me that are all different for different reasons. Same thing goes with knives, right? So it's been a positive experience for you so far. Oh, 100%. From the very beginning, we probably had made 50 knives at the time and I went and hung out with Spartan Blades at their shop showed them some of the first knives and they've been just a huge help for this entire time they're probably an hour from us yeah so that's crazy that a giant business like that's willing to help us that's awesome man that's good to hear um when it comes to your company and where people can get your knives where do they go we have a website stroopknives.com s-t-r-o-u-p mm-hmm. we're also in a lot of retail locations a lot of the gun stores a lot of the online knife stores so if you just Google us, it'll show a bunch of our retailers also. You Okay, so where, where are you at in distribution? That, that's interesting. I'm, I meant to ask that, but where, where, you, where can they find you? Like what places can they find you? Some of the bigger ones are Smoky Mountain Knife Works. Um, E-Knives is a really good place. Online, they have a storefront also. KnifeCenter.com, Blade Ops, Blade HQ, um, River's Edge Cutlery. Holy crap. So you guys are distroing a lot. We're in about 50 retailers right now. Some of them are tiny and only buy a couple of knives at a time, but some of them are like knife wholesalers, like Blue Ridge Knives. Wow. So we're doing it. We're in uh, nine of the 10 Mass General Store locations. Yeah. What's, what, is, what, is, what are those? It's kind of like an REI, but cooler. Yeah. It's more of a hometown, small store feel, but it's a giant store yeah. with all the cool stuff that REI's got, but their employees are amazing. Yeah, they're more knife friendly, probably. Oh, they have a giant knife counter. I don't probably think, the size of this room we're sitting in right now. I don't think I probably REI has banned knives. I don't think I've seen knives recently at REI. They, we were just in REI last week. Yeah. They had a couple of Benchmades. That was that's it on this little tiny shelf. Yeah, yeah, hidden underneath the floor. <laughs> yeah, scary. So you can get your knives in, in a lot of places. We're but, working on it. Yeah, but Stroop Knives is the main StroopKnives.com. Correct. What about social media? How are you doing? A lot of marketing for knives. With it? what's your marketing tactics in knives? I'm learning this. Yeah, because we still do most of everything for our business. Mm-hmm. So our Instagram is pretty active. I take all the pictures on there still. Mm-hmm. So I've been learning how to do photography. But our Instagram, we're pretty active on. We try and post every day. Mm-hmm. So that's a good way to keep up with what we're doing. Yeah, and that's just Stroop.knives. Stroop.knives. So we'd appreciate new followers. We're trying to grow it. It's been. You know, it's a tough battle. Yeah. Getting there. Yeah, man. Jesus. <laughs> Social media, dude. Social media. Yeah. I've met, met a lot of great people on there, though. Yeah, it's weird because every time I'm like, social media sucks, there's always some social connection yep. that's made. And I'm like, well, I couldn't have done that or I would have never met that person if it wasn't for social media and that connection. That's how we met Justin Melnick. Yeah. Oh, Melanek. Oh, Justin. Let's talk about Justin a little bit before we go. Justin Melanek is one of the actors on the TV show Seal. Is it what is it called now? Seal Team. Seal Team. Yep. It's always probably been that. I just was trying to buy some time there. Seal Team. That's on Paramount now. And um, he actually is sick right now. He was supposed to uh, come out, but he's feeling like crap. Um, but I'll, I'll have him on the podcast later because I want to talk about his story. But he's a partner with you guys, right? He's doing some stuff with you guys? Yeah, so we just became partners 
So he's a part owner of our business now. Awesome. And that all started on Instagram. I made a story on Christmas a year ago, something like, does anybody else dream about knives? And he responded to it. And then I responded, you know, a couple of days later, like, hey, man, your Instagram following is huge. How'd you do that? I didn't know who he was. I didn't know anything about him, you know? <laughs> he's like, well, it comes with the territory of being an actor. I was like, oh, crap, he's an actor. <laughs> and then we did the Bravo Five Knife together. Yeah. And Justin is so cool that he asked for zero of the proceeds. Really? He just wanted us to donate to the Special Operations Wounded Warriors. Justin, you're such a you're such an awesome dude. <laughs> so the the knife launched, right? And we worked together really well. And mm-hmm. he called me. He said, Hey man, look, you could tell me I'm crazy or not, but if you were a Navy SEAL, you'd be really good at marketing yourself mm-hmm. and being everywhere. But you were in the army, so you're not good at this. Let me help you. <laughs> it's so true. You'd have like five books by now if you were a Navy SEAL. Um r- wow, that's awesome. So Justin's uh a partner in helping out with marketing and stuff like that. Yeah, kind of outreach. That's how we got connected with you. That's right. <laughs> Holy crap. Yeah, all from Justin liking our Instagram story one time. Yeah, Justin, the thing about Justin is he's an actor and he plays a SEAL on TV, but he's actually a former law enforcement dude. Current. Oh, is he? He's, that's right. He still has a status. Yep. And he has a lot of experience and a lot of life that adds to probably the genuine feel that you get from him of operating because he's done a lot of stuff in his life. He's just a good human. Yeah. Very selfless. He's willing to help. Yeah. He drove up here and had breakfast with my family just driving through. I mean, it was awesome, man. Like I I love Justin, man. And I I look forward to having him on the podcast. Cool. I'll leave it closing thoughts um, for you. Anything to say, anything that plug, um, I'll, I'll let you close it out. All right. I guess the biggest thing that I can say is take care of your family, right? Mm. Let's raise our kids to be good humans so the world can be better. That's mm. the biggest we try and biggest thing we try and do is raise our kids the right way. Mm. Whatever you feel is the right way, but don't put them on phones and tablets. That's lazy. Mm-hmm. Like get them outside doing, teach them how to be good people. Like mm. Let's take care of each other, you know? Mm. I love that, man. Yeah, it's, the, it's, it's one of the talking points that we're trying to get back to is let's just get back to basics focus on the family first and foremost, and then all the other stuff won't matter. You know, um, that's good life advice. And I appreciate you. I appreciate you coming out uh, with your, your wife and, and hanging out with us. And looking forward to that collaboration with Kevin Estelle and Phil Craft and seeing how that bushcraft knife comes out. Um, thanks for having, thanks for being on the podcast. I'm usually on podcast. Thanks yeah. for being on the podcast. Thanks so much for having us out here. This was a lot of fun. Yeah. Guys, stroopknives.com. Make sure you check them out. That bushcraft blade would be available. Just check out philcraftsurvival.com. Um, I want to continue to bring veterans, uh, especially that are starting businesses, talk about their experiences, talk about what they're trying to do. Um, uh, I am a veteran myself. Obviously, uh, we support veteran uh, advocacy. So if you're interested in somebody that you know that might be a veteran, leave comments below because we check those. And let us know who we should interview next on the Black Rifle Coffee podcast. Till next time. Peace out, guys. That concludes today's training. Any questions? Woo! Drum titties, boy!